We are in the middle of a series, or I should say near the beginning of a series on the book of Acts. The series is entitled, Unconquered from One Life to All Nations. And today we're going to cover the third chapter of Acts. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles if you have one. And if you don't, no problems, because I'm going to, we're going to flash it up on the screen as I read. No resources to recommend today, by the way, but, but please do remember the study guide that has been published to serve you and to serve you in your small groups, if you're in a small group. Also, we're coming to the end of this study guide, and the one for the next chapters is, on, is being published right, right now, so that'll be given out probably next week. Acts chapter 3, title of this morning's message is The Wonder-Working Savior, The Wonder-Working Savior. Savior. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, He asked to receive the alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made the man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray together, please. Lord, we realize as we come together that there is, there is nothing significant, there's nothing important, there's nothing eternal, there's nothing transformational that is going to take place unless you visit us this morning. Unless you use the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to help us to see what is contained in your word. And so we ask you now to meet us and to open us, open up this this chapter of Acts, that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, there is a report which almost seems incidental against the spellbinding things that take place in chapter 2. I mean, think about it. Let's just go back to chapter 2 for a moment and think about all of the things that we have seen thus far. The Spirit of God has been poured out. Tongues have been spoken. Peter has preached. People have gotten saved. 3,000 people were added to the church in one day. That's quite a day, by the way. And tucked into the final passages of that chapter, the final verses, is this almost passing report. It's almost left dangling there in chapter 2, verse 43, where it says, Many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And then chapter 3 opens with just one of these wonders. There was a man. He was born handicapped. He was one known by all. He was a guy who was carried daily to the temple to beg for money. He was a guy who engaged Peter and John for nothing more than to just hit them up for some cash. And he was, in a matter of seconds, amazingly, suddenly, unexpectedly, miraculously, wondrously healed. He wasn't asking for a miracle. He wasn't there for a healing. All he wanted was money. But as it is with all people, God wanted more for him than he wanted for himself. And so the Spirit comes, his legs move, and the next thing you know, this guy's a candidate for dancing with the stars because he's leaping and he's praising and he's worshiping and he's jumping around in the temple. But what I want to do with you is to look very carefully at the effect of this miracle as it's reported in chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. 
Now, that's certainly understandable because it's not every day that one sees one born disabled leaping, running, and praising God. But what happens next is that Peter stands, and in verse 12, he asks a question. And it's a question which at first glance almost seems utterly absurd. He asks this question. He says in verse 12, why do you wonder at this? I mean, that's a funny thing to ask. Why do you wonder at this wonder? I mean, the logical answer seems to be because it's a wonder. We wonder at wonders because they make one wonder. That's the point of a wonder. It's why they're called wonders. I mean, think of the seven wonders of the world. The Great Wall, the Taj Mahal, the Roman Colosseum. They're named wonders because people have stood before them thinking, that's amazing, that's incredible, I wonder how that was done. I wonder how it was made. There's something about it that incites wonder. By the way, one of the unique burdens of being from Pittsburgh is that the word wonder, meaning awe and amazement, and the word wonder, which means to roam, are both pronounced the same way. It's impossible for a Pittsburgher to distinguish between the O and the A. So the Christmas carol, I wonder as I wonder, I mean, it just totally plays with our head. Sounds entirely redundant when sung by somebody from Pittsburgh. But Peter's question, why do you wonder at this wonder, becomes really important to understanding chapter 3. In fact, his question is a kind of hinge where the whole chapter swings open in in answering it. And so let's together look at how the story, the entire story of chapter 3, addresses Peter's central question, why do you wonder? Why do we wonder? And I've got two different responses to this. Response number one is miracles create wonder. Miracles create wonder. Now, let's just think about the reasons why miracles create wonder. First is that miracles create wonder Because when a miracle takes place like this, God grabs the stage. God takes the stage. God moves to the center of the stage. So Peter and John are ambling toward the the temple in their daily routine of prayer. And there's this disabled guy that everybody knows at the temple. And he's there every day. And he's been there for years. And because he's disabled, he attracts some attention and some sympathy, which, by the way, is the burden of the disabled and always has been, that they attract attention and sympathy and oftentimes unwanted. But because this man is a daily fixture at the temple, he's often invisible. He's kind of like white noise in the background, always there but not always perceptible. But then in verse 7, God dramatically heals him, which makes him not invisible, but visible, and not silent, but loud. So he's visible and loud. And this fills, according to verse 11, the, the te- verse 10, the people with wonder and amazement. In other words, all of a sudden, God has the attention. The microphone has been passed to God. God has moved to the center stage. God takes supremacy. He takes superiority. His story is about to be put forward. So miracles create wonder in part 
Because God has designed that His glory and His story begins to move to the center through some situation. But there's another reason as well. Miracles create wonder because they become a little, just a little peek into the heart of God, into the heart of, of Jesus Christ. Just, just, a, just a peek. I mean, the full display of God's love and his heart for us is found, of course, at the cross and the resurrection. And that's why, that's why Peter is ultimately going to take us there, and we're going to talk about that in the second point. But what we see here in Acts chapter 3 is just this, this little peek. See, this is, not, this is not a random display of power. This is not some kind of cosmic tease to remind us that God really has clout, like he's the, you know, he's the mob boss that just wants to flash a wad to impress the boys. No, the lame leaping is just a little slice of love from heaven because it's a reminder of the one who came from heaven and who had compassion on the suffering, like the good shepherd with his sheep which is why the man was healed in Jesus' name. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he comes back to Jesus' name in verse 16. And by his name and by faith in his name has this man been made strong that you see and know that it is through faith in Christ Jesus. See, it's, a, it's just a little peek at who Jesus is. It's just a little peek at the heart of God for his people. This is seen even clearly in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Copied this passage out, wanted to read it to you. It says, quote, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, God loves us. And even though we're suffering at times, God's heart still moves towards us. And there are times where for his pleasure and his purpose, he breaks into the routine and he does something supernatural. And it's a, it's a, it's a reminder of his special and unique love, his heart for us. I was reminded of this recently at how our shepherd still shows this kind of compassion when I heard the story of, of Deborah Pacetti, who's a, who's a member here at Four Oaks. De- Deborah was diagnosed with, with stage four cancer. In fact, stage four cancer that had already spread to her liver. I mean, that's the point when it's, spread to, when it's stage four and it's spread to the liver, that's the point where the doctor just walks in and says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. In fact, she had so many lesions that they couldn't even do radiation. I mean, that's the stage when when a person hears two words about their body that nobody ever wants to hear, incurable and fatal. And so her family was notified. Her sons moved back home to be with their mother because Deborah had little time. Deborah was dying. About three months later, she's driving down Blairstone Road. And the same spirit that is described for us in Acts chapter 2 that came upon them came upon Deborah and flooded the car 
with his presence. Now, now Deborah, if you talked to her, she would be quick to say, I wasn't asking for it. I didn't have faith for it to happen. I wasn't praying. It's just like Acts chapter 3. This man was not asking for a healing. He was asking for money. There's a sense where he had no idea who he was looking at. He didn't know that they were apostles. He didn't know that the Spirit had come. He just had this daily need. But God was smiling, and he wanted to break in upon the man in the same way that he broke in upon Deborah. And she began to feel this otherworldly sensation. And she said she remembers thinking, I think God is, is God touching me right now? And then she spoke these words out loud. She's the only one in the car, but she spoke them out loud. She said, I wonder if God is healing me right now. She drove home and told her husband. She said, I I think I was healed today. The next PET PET scan, she told the doctor, you know what? Before you take the PET scan, I I think God healed me. He said, well, let's, let's see. And so they conducted the test. The cancer was gone. There was no trace of cancer whatsoever. That was over two years ago. Now listen, there are many Christians that love Jesus that in the past two years have died from stage four cancer that has gone to the liver. God elected not to heal many different people. But there are times where for his own reason and to express his love and compassion in a singular way, he'll break through and his power will come. And God's compassion broke through to Deborah just as it did with the man in Acts chapter 3. So miracles create wonder at times because they give us a peek into the heart of the Savior. And And then lastly, miracles create wonder because they, they point us to another world. Did you ever notice how we're kind of instinctively drawn to these stories of, of God's power, of the supernatural? You, you were even feeling it as I was telling you the story about Deborah. There was something stirring in your heart saying, I love that. I want to see that. I want that. I need that. Because there's something inside of us that is profoundly attracted to the supernatural, attracted to powers outside of ourselves. I mean, the cultural version of this is shows about, you know, vampires and the, the paranormal and, and zombies. And it's why Halloween is becoming such, such a big holiday, bigger than Christmas, it would seem at times. Because there's this itch in the human heart that is only scratched by the mysterious and the miraculous because the heart longs to wonder. The heart wants to wonder because there's something inside of us that just knows that we were created for another world, that we were created for something different. We were created for a place where we are whole, where there is no sin or sickness or pain. And there's a, there's a sense where there's an, there's an echo from that place that reaches our hearts every once in a while, a kind of signal from a distant land indicating that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And it reminds us of something. It reminds us that stage four cancer is not normal. 
It reminds us that miscarriages and crime and pain and heartache are not normal. And there is a sense where the outcome of a miracle is the normal according to God. It's the normal of the future. It's where we're all going. It's where we're all heading. And there are times where in the pleasure of God, he will allow that to break through the routine of life. He'll allow it to break through in the presence and remind us that we're not created for this moment, we're not created for this world, that we're not home yet. And so they create wonder because they point to another world, that miracles are an invasion of the age to come. It's a little slice of the future in the present. If I could risk a a Lord of the Rings analogy and I say risk because these are really overused by preachers, myself included, but I couldn't resist this one. Just after the climax of the, in the last book of the, of the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that Gandalf is alive. He thought he was dead. He's alive. And he cries out to Gandalf. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead Myself, And then he asks this question. He says, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? You know what the answer for the Christian is? Oh, absolutely. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And Acts chapter 3, or miracles, remind us that everything sad will ultimately come untrue. And by the way, it's not just about good things coming true. It's about the unraveling of sad things. It's about God doing a work so comprehensive where he has begun through Acts chapter 2 and the pouring out of the Spirit to roll back the effects of the fall. In fact, that's what we're told of in verse 21 where it says, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of the prophets. That Acts chapter 2 begins this invasion where God has begun the process of restoring all things. So it's not just about good things coming true. It's the unraveling of sad things that's coming true. And the response in verse 10 is the only logical response where we we are filled with wonder and awe because that's how we respond when the future breaks into this world. That's how we respond when the future breaks into the present, even when it's just for a moment. Because miracles create wonder, and they create wonder because in part they point to the existence of another world. It's a world that we were ultimately created for, but we're not there yet. So the overall point is that miracles create wonder. And that's one of the main points of Acts chapter 3. But there's a second one, and I dare say a more important one in Acts chapter 3, and that is that Christ satisfies wonder. See, we must always remember that miracles create wonder, and they do. They create wonder, they create awe, they create amazement, but they don't necessarily create belief in God. Miracles are great attention-gathering and attention-grabbing events, but they don't convert. In fact, they don't always even stir faith. That's why verses 7 through 10, the report of what took place, requires the preaching of Jesus 
that begins in verse 12. Because wonders and amazement and awe and miracles has to be interpreted by Jesus. And you'll see this even beginning in the Gospels where Jesus did a work, but then he brought the word and he interpreted it. That's why in Acts chapter 2, there was the sign, and then there was the sermon. You might want to say there's a miracle, and then there's a message. You can say it in any number of ways, but the point is that Acts chapter 3 seems to continue a unique pattern in Scripture where there is the performing of the miracle and then the preaching of Jesus Christ. Because the work, the sign, the miracle does not in itself create or stir or stimulate or inspire Faith towards God. For that, we need a Savior. Remember, the Bible is filled with examples of people who encountered the miraculous, yet remained unchanged by the experience. In John chapter 6, you know, Jesus preached to, Jesus fed 5,000 people, and then he walked on water after that. But still later on in John chapter 6, it says, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer wanted, no longer walked with him. In other words, they they marveled at his power. They were inspired by the potency of his words and his acts, but they were, they bailed at the cost of what it required to walk after him. So the point that I'm getting at and the point that Acts chapter 3 gets at is that miracles are not ultimately the answer. They simply point to the answer. It's Christ that satisfies the wonder. And so Peter offers the key to interpret the miracles by preaching Jesus Christ, by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to pay as we proceed careful attention to exactly what Peter says. Because what Peter says is where he shows us how Christ actually satisfies our wonder. But in doing so, he also shows some some helps for how we can reach people with the gospel, how we can reach our one life. Now, for the benefit of the guests, when you hear that term one life, that's simply a way that we're describing a goal that we have for our series Whereas, you know, oftentimes when Acts is preached, you set your goal on the nations and seeing the gospel go to the nations, and that certainly is a part of Acts, and that's an important part, and we're not denying or ignoring that. But for this series, we're really trying to make our goal very simple, and that is for each one of us to just think about one person that we want to pray for, one person that we want to serve, one person we want to reach out to, one person we ultimately might want to share the gospel with, and we're calling that person our one life. And so what I'm saying is that there's a path through this message that Peter gives from wonder to Jesus Christ. And I think it offers for us some steps. It offers us a pathway from wonder to Christ that we can use in reaching out to our one life. So think about this in four steps the path from wonder to Christ. Number, step number one is the wonder itself. So in, in verse 12 of chapter 3, Peter identifies what they're wondering about, and he makes what they're wondering about the starting point for what he wants to say to them. In other words, 
Peter finds, he discovers, he locates himself in the pressing question being raised by the people in that moment or by the person in that moment. And he seeks to answer the question from the word of God. Peter identifies what the wonder is. What's the wonder? What is it that they're wondering about? Now, in in the case of this passage, the, the wonder is obvious. But in ours, in reaching our one life, it might take more work. But the point I'm trying to make is you find the wonder and you find a doorway into their life. You find a place where they're asking important questions of identity, important questions of purpose, important questions perhaps even about God. I wonder where to get help with our kids. I wonder why God seems silent in the face of what our family's going through. I wonder why I was raised the way I was raised. Why were my parents divorced? Remember, a wonder doesn't have to be supernatural to incite interest and to incite curiosity. But a wonder is the beginning of an opportunity. It's a question being put forward. And as we seek to reach our one life, we have to find their wonder and locate ourselves in it or locate God in it in some way. So that's step number one. Step number two is the we, W-E, the we. This is where Peter connects their question to what he shares with them. And this is where in verse 13, he, he just begins to talk about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered. And he's locating himself in their story. There's a sense where Peter is identifying that they share a history together. He does it again in verse verse 17 where he says, and now brothers. And then he goes on to talk about Moses and talk about Samuel and talk about the prophets. Because Peter is looking to identify with his audience. And he's using scripture extensively in part because he knows that that's a history they share. That's something where if he begins to teach, he's going to have their attention But it's also this, it's also a common authority that they have. So there's a sense where Peter pinpoints the cultural authority that the group of people that he's addressing has, which was the Scriptures, this is the Jews in the New Testament, so the Old Testament, even though they're unconverted, they have the Old Testament as a source of authority. And so he's using this source of authority to address address them. And the passages that he uses are, are, were common authority that he could draw from. So the question that we have to ask, and the way to think about that for our one life is, what authority does our one life recognize? And how can we relate to that? How can we, you know, what commonality might we have with that source of authority? Another way to say this is, where can we say we? Where can I say we? with my one life. Maybe it's, maybe it's our family ties. We both were raised in solid families, and, and uh, that has a real authority. That, that has a great influence over us. Maybe, it's, maybe their authority is the government or certain books that they've read that they consider 
written by experts. Or maybe it's the internet. Or if you're reach, reaching a teenager, one source of authority for teenagers is their friends. They speak authoritatively the life of other friends. Maybe you were both raised in the church, and there's a, there's a sense where the authority of the church kind of casts a shadow over the, over the life of your one life. You know, author Flannery O'Connor once said this. She said, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. And what she means by that is that, that the person of Christ still incites a kind of nostalgia among those that were raised in the church in the South, and that there is an ongoing interest that he's not just dismissed. There isn't even a, there's a fear where Christ can cast a cloud. And, and there's a kind of authority that can still be attached to his name and his words. And so that might be perhaps a place where you create the we in your relationship with your one life. Number three, step number three, the bridge. The bridge. This is where Peter is always moving people specifically towards Jesus Christ, helping them find their answer in Jesus Christ. I read earlier verses 13, he says, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, verse 16, and by his name, by faith in his name, has that man been made strong. See, he's just going after Jesus. He's helping them to think about their experience and their story in light of Jesus. He's he's putting Jesus in their story. You know, one of the things that we get to do with our one life is to, is to reinterpret their story with Jesus at the center, which is exactly what, what Peter's doing. He's saying what you've experienced is the means by which Jesus is using to draw you to him. And that's, what, you know, a good thing that we do when we're, reach, we're trying to reach somebody with the gospel is we're not just... We're not just landing on them with with all the harsh truth of Scripture. We're trying to help them to understand how their story has led them to Jesus and how Jesus locates himself in their pain, in their hopelessness, in their loneliness, or their sense that life is hollow and meaningless, or where there are unfulfilled desires to help them to see that those desires can only be filled and only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. So we're helping them to understand their story with Jesus in it. We're helping them to bridge from their story to Jesus. And we're going to discover as we go through Acts and some of the exciting chapters that come up, I mean, there are some amazing things where the apostles, the apostles, they're just dropping into new places, new cultures. But one of the things that they're always doing is looking to find the bridge between where these people are and who Jesus is. So Acts chapter 17, Paul's going to go to Athens. He goes to Athens. He's walking through the Areopagus. He sees this altar to an unknown God. He begins to preach to the people immediately, and he starts with the altar to the unknown God, and he walks them all the way to Jesus, and then he walks them back from Jesus to the altar of the unknown God, from the thing they worshiped, to Jesus. 
And see, that's the bridge that we also make with our one life, and that's the bridge that Peter is making with his listeners as well. Step number four is the claim. The claim. First three steps, by the way, often take time before we arrive at the claim, unless, of course, a miracle happens, in which case you can move immediately to the claim like Peter does. But the claim is where Jesus asserts his call upon the person that you are talking to. This is the, this means you moment for that person. This means you. That's what, that's what Peter is doing. He calls them sinners, verses 14, 15, and then he calls him to repent in verse 19, verse 14 again. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Look down at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. See, Peter is addressing them specifically, and he's helping them to understand that this is the claim that the first three steps makes upon you. That it's not simply knowing about Jesus, it's not simply feeling good about Jesus, but it's that Jesus makes a claim and calls you to repent. And honestly... Often, this is the most difficult part of the pathway that I'm describing because there are few things that are more culturally offensive than asserting that Jesus is the only way to God and that repentance is the only way to Jesus. I mean, Paul said that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That means that there's a a certain segment of society who is guaranteed to interpret your message, my message, as foolishness. We might as well be saying Elvis is the only way to God and turnips are the only way to Elvis. See, it, it makes no sense. It seems foolish. It seems absurd. But here's what we have to remember. We always have to remember Acts 2. In other words, we always have to remember that we're not the only ones at work in this field. That there is a kind of resistance force that is at work behind the scenes that was poured out in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 3 follows Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God was poured out, and the Spirit of God is in the world doing the work of God and preparing the field for the invasion of the gospel. You know, in 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 the Second World War, the French resistance, back when those words could go together, I could not resist. I'm sorry. (laughs) The French resistance worked with these subversive tactics behind the enemy lines to prepare the country for an invasion. And so when the Allied forces landed in June 6th of 1944, there was a sense where there was work done beforehand. There was preparation already from within. Listen, each time you see repentance in the book of Acts, you are seeing the results of the subversive work of the Spirit of God. You are seeing the results of the Spirit of God having been poured out in Acts chapter 2. 
So always remember when we're reading from Acts chapter 3, verse 1 on through Acts, that Acts chapter 2 was the Normandy. It was the launch of the invasion. It was the, the work that God began to roll back the effects of the fall, to roll back the effects of Eden, to begin to reclaim and restore all things, which is ultimately consummated by his return. And that the Spirit has come to begin this work of resistance, this work of subverting the work of sin, subverting the work of the enemy. And that's why Peter talks about that later on in Acts chapter 3, verse 21, of whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration, because God is taking back his people, and he's done it by, by beginning the work in Acts chapter 2 of the restoration of all things, of making all that is sad untrue, and doing it one life at a time. So, as you think about your one life, always remember, you're not the only one at work here. You're not the only one at work here. The resistance is at work. The resistance is at work making the gospel invasion possible, creating wonder, creating amazement, and drawing lost souls to Jesus Christ. So don't ever underestimate the power of the Spirit's work in preparing the heart of your one life for the gospel. And, and maybe it would be helpful to begin to think about how, how the Spirit of God worked in your life to prepare your heart for the gospel. See, I can say that because I, I remember back on how active the Spirit of God was long before I was converted at just preparing the way, at beginning this work of subversion, of beginning this work of resistance and drawing me to the gospel, drawing me to Jesus. In fact, I was, I was recently asked by Josh to, to let them video my, my story, which they did, and, and we're going to close the message today by watching that video. And as you listen to the video, I want you to pay, pay careful attention to the work of the Spirit in, in preparing my heart for the gospel. And as you listen, may it encourage you and may it encourage your soul and may it supply you with fresh faith that God goes before you as you seek to reach out to one life and as you seek to, to, to introduce one life to the wonder-working Savior.